Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. Today's guest is a personal hero of mine and someone I have been hoping to have on the podcast since the beginning. Dave McLeod is my guest today. Dave is a professional climber from Scotland, and he might be the best all-around climber in the world. He has climbed V15, 514D. He established the first E11 trad route in the world with a route called Rhapsody, which is basically a 514C with a massive fall potential at the crux onto tiny gear. Dave has also free soloed 514 and climbed Scottish mixed rock and ice routes up to grade 12, which I frankly don't understand, but I believe grade 12 is as high as the scale goes. So incredibly well accomplished across the board. Dave has also put up countless first ascents in every style and is still busy projecting new routes near his home. Dave also has two master's degrees, one in sport and exercise science and the other in human nutrition, and he is the author of two books, Nine Out of Ten Climbers Make the Same Mistakes, which we talk about in part two. Stay tuned for that next week. And his second book, Make or Break, which is all about recovering from and preventing climbing injuries. Dave has also been writing a blog for over 13 years and more recently has started a popular vlog on his YouTube channel discussing training topics, tactics, nutrition, injury rehab, and all sorts of other stuff. It is a treasure trove of information, so I definitely recommend checking that out if you haven't. We talked about a lot of different stuff in part one. One of the topics I was most excited to ask Dave about was a period in his own climbing many years ago when he made a jump up in his climbing ability from 8B or 513D to 9A or 514D in 18 months. That is something that he has talked about in the past on his blog and he recently made a video about it, which I will link to in the show notes, which I highly recommend watching as an adjunct to this episode. He attributes most of that improvement to fingerboarding, and I had a bunch of burning questions about his hangboard philosophy. And if you want more context, Dave has a very detailed video explaining his hangboard routine that I would recommend, and you can find that one in the show notes as well at thenuggetclimbing.com. In part one, we also talked about Dave's theories on why we get tendon injuries and what he is doing to reduce his own risk of tendon injuries. We talked about nutritional research and the difference between epidemiological studies and designed experiments and how to interpret scientific research and why we shouldn't necessarily trust the headlines in the magazines or the news. And I asked Dave what his top recommendation would be as far as nutrition goes for athletes, regardless of whether you choose to eat animal products or to follow a vegetarian or vegan diet. If you are new to Dave and haven't heard him talk about any of this stuff before, this episode might feel a little dense. And I would recommend watching his 8B to 9A video and his hangboard video for context. Again, I will link to those in the show notes. On the other hand, if you have been a fan of Dave for some time and have been craving more of the juicy details, I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation. 
Part two will be available next week, unless you are listening to this in the future, in which case you can go listen to it immediately after this episode. Please enjoy part one of my in-depth conversation with Dave McLeod. I thought this would be fun to start with. So I've been following you and your climbing for a long time, and you might be the best all-rounder I've ever come across. You might be the best in the world as far as you know, the whole entire spectrum of climbing from bouldering all the way to this crazy mixed Scottish winter climbing that you do that I can't even comprehend. But something that I would love to ask you about is your down climbing. (laughs) There's this really interesting uh, style and ethic in the UK, and maybe it's outdated now, I don't know, but especially with hard grit routes or hard, scary trad climbs where it seems like common practice to climb up quite a ways, place your protection and then down climb all the way to the ground, rest and count that as a single try as you, you know, continue back up the route fresh and not having to place that same gear. So I would, (laughs) I would love to ask, what is the hardest thing you've ever down climbed? (laughs) Good first question. Um, I think the hardest thing I've ever down climbed is probably on some of the head point routes that I've done. Um, where the whole climb might be like 14B or something like that, um, but some of like some of the down climbs from the from the sort of highest place that you could might also be around 14B, <laughs> but you climb up around you know a first third of the route and then place some gear which is quite intricate and fiddly to place, and often there's there's quite a lot of it. You have to place like a lot of runners. But all of them are quite bad, but together they add up to something that you might consider falling onto. Um, <laughs> and then by the time you've done that, you get a little bit pumped and then you climb back down to the ground. And it, it does seem a little bit weird for people that are not familiar with trad climbing yeah, that you would do that. But it's just kind of an extension of what you would do in normal climbing. We do it mostly in on-site trad climbing where you know you climb up to till you can't go any higher you hang around and try and work it out a little bit and then you down climb to a rest and you know by extension you can just down climb all the way to the ground and and with it with anything when you're pushing the kind of limit and taking it as far as it can go then you, you kind of take if that's like considered an acceptable rule then you take it to the absolute limit and so we do end up doing these like it's quite often a part of of headpoint and on site trad where you, you climb up as high as you can place your gear come back down to the ground to the rest for a rest without weighting the rope at all and then carry on. <laughs> but it does get to these kind of strange situations where you're doing some really desperate down climbing. <laughs> but if you do a lot of on-site trads, especially dangerous trad, it's really good to be able to do that. It gets you out of trouble. Hmm. Uh, some really sort of sticky situations where um, you might otherwise feel very committed and your only option is either carrying on or falling off. If you've got this third option of being able to down climb at a reasonable level, then yeah, that's saved saved my ass in a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you draw the line with the resting at the ground? I mean, can you take your shoes off? Have you ever, you know, eaten a snack or taken a nap <laughs> once you've climbed back down um, to the ground? Well, once once you're on the ground, you're on the ground. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, Come back the next day. 
<laughs> yeah, the main thing is not waiting the rope. I, I yeah. Don't, I, yeah, I mean, it, it, it would get a bit weird if you were coming back the next day. <laughs> that would be that would be strange. Uh-huh. But yeah, I suppose all, all all climbing ethics are slightly contrived in a way. It's like you know, someone that mainly does sport climbing might think of down climbing to the ground for a rest as being strange, but equally they wouldn't have a problem with pre-placing all the quick draws. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just kind of like yeah, yeah or contrived climbing rules. Camping on a ledge or hanging out in a big you know hole in the rock in Red River Gorge or something and just sitting there or in Oleana. Yeah, yeah. Big big wall red pointing gets kind of weird as well for mm. you have to kind of make your define your your rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 14B it sounds like. <laughs> <Down climb. laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people train on boards these days, and I do that as well. So uh-huh. quite often, if you're used to circuit training, you're used to actually hard down climbs anyway. Uh. So it's not so unusual now. <laughs> <laughs> I've asked this on the show before. Do you think it helps your up climbing technique or is it a separate thing? Um, I think it probably does. Yeah, because um, especially on steep ground, uh, when you're trying to get tension with your feet and you're trying to regain tension when you're coming down the way, it's actually, it just feels a little bit different. And I think it does help you a little bit with how you you get contact with the foothold and pull in with your, your feet. And I, I mean, a lot of technique training is like that, where you you do something to change the movement and it allows you to experience it in a slightly different way and you learn something about climbing movement in the process hmm. and so that can be useful yeah hmm. yeah in a small way <laughs> <laughs> amazing <laughs> um well dave there's i actually had a difficult time preparing for this because there's it blows me away the amount of material that you put out into the world and <laughs> I've I've never received so many questions for an interview as I have with this one. I have guests uh, that submit questions for people I'm having on the show. And there's a lot of interest in you and your climbing and everything that you're doing outside of climbing. And it seems to just, you know, run the whole gambit of all the things that we're interested in as humans trying to perform or just be healthy. Sure. So, uh, so yeah, the list is long and there's a lot of mm. things uh, to touch on, but I think the most burning questions I have actually go back to a blog post that you posted years ago. And oh, right. you've actually shared a lot of content about this since then, which is amazing. And I, um, there's a really great video that you did doing a deep dive on this specific thing and I'll link to it in the show notes. But there's this chapter in your climbing where you made this really big leap from around 8B to 8C plus. So for mm. us Americans, 13D to 14C in about 18 months. And mm-hmm. I think I read that blog post probably half a dozen times just looking for <laughs> clues and secrets and really trying to understand uh, the details of what you were doing and how you were fingerboarding and all these things. Um, and again, that video, I think you you made about a 30-minute video unpacking all of it, and it's really valuable, and I'll share that. But I was wondering if you could, for listeners, give a quick overview of, of that chapter of your climbing and how that kind of progression came to be and then I'll uh I have some questions I'd love to dive into with that yeah sure well I, I think um you know thinking about that period in, in my climbing there's two parts to it I mean one there's the 
the part that's relevant to me and then this part that I'd want other people to take away from it. So the part that was relevant to me was that um, I started doing some basic finger strength training on a fingerboard pretty regularly and consistently. Um, and that allowed me to make a big jump in finger strength. So, that, I mean, that that gives the idea that fingerboarding is a very useful training tool. <laughs> that used to, when, when I've, at that time, which would have been the early 2000s, there weren't masses, like it wasn't nearly as common for people to use fingerboards. And especially now in 2020, mm-hmm. there's hardly anyone who isn't. Um, so that's not controversial. But the kind of wider point is like, what should people take away from it? And and I think that is relating to finding whatever your, your weak area is. Um, so looking at my background, I'd already spent a long apprenticeship doing all these different types of climbing and also on many different rock types. And I'd also grown up in a climbing culture that very highly values technique. So the way you climb something rather than um, just beasting your way up it looking very strong. So, you know, people did say, oh, you look strong, you know, or you're climbing strongly. People did say that, but not nearly as much as now. (laughs) People really valued someone who could climb something and make it look easy. Hmm. So it was like, if you could climb something without using your strength, that was that was kind of valued in the climbing culture that I grew up in, and I definitely carried that. So I think that meant that my climbing apprenticeship had given me a broad base of of awareness of movement technique and climbing and tactics. So I could really get the most out of my strength. So if you can imagine, like per unit finger strength. <laughs> For every kilo of finger strength that I had, I could get a lot of mileage out of climbing difficulty from that, which meant that just pushing that by a little bit, a few more kilos, could was enough to have a huge increase in, mm. in my grade level. That might not be the same for someone else. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if someone else is either movement technique or their tactics are not so well developed, then they could increase their finger strength by a fair amount and it would only have a fairly modest effect on their climbing standard. So there's there's lots of sort of layers for how to how to understand that. But basically uh, wh- what I did is I was I was fairly plateaued at around 13D red point level. Um, and I could yeah I mean I could do that I could do that consistently and I could do it in on trad as well as on bolts and I, I, I became aware that it was a real plateau I really really was stuck for the first time for a, a long time like quite a few years really uh, so I understood that the tactics I was using in my training to try and keep improving were starting to reach a bit of a dead end I'd milked them as far as I could go and I wanted to uh, think about changing changing tack and trying something quite different so at that point, I shifted a, a bit more towards physical training. Not that I wasn't doing physical training already, but I, I changed, well, two things. I mean, I, I changed to doing that most basic form of, of climbing training, which is just hanging from a piece of wood, 20 mil edge, but also doing it on a very consistent basis. 
and that really did have a marked effect. So I started doing that at the start of a summer. So it was like the end of the spring conditions here in Scotland where the time for hard red pointing was coming to an end and we were coming into the mountain trad season. But also the season where it's almost like off-season training, uh, where it's too hot to really climb hard. So we do trad in the mountains, but I'd also do a bit of basic training as well. Uh, and I, I started doing fingerboarding about six days a week for about 30 minutes. And, you know, not, not great volume, 30 minutes total, including the warm-up. Mm. So that's like a, a warm-up and then a handful of sets per, per grip type. And I just did that six days a week. And, yeah, when I came back to my spring projects, when it got to the October, I was absolutely blown away by the, the increase in strength. It was, <laughs> it was just fantastic. Um, but because I already had that, that base of technique, I could, I could just take that. It was probably only a few kilos more, hmm. but it meant, it meant a big difference for me because I could really leverage it because I'd already developed um, a reasonable base of technique. Interesting, yeah. Okay, a number of things I want to get into there. First off, your hangboard philosophy is a little different from what is kind of common in the training space these days. You just spoke to this. You did it six days a week, and uh, you've had other videos where you kind of break down your fingerboarding. I'd love to hear how you think about the high-intensity and high-frequency low-volume sessions versus what's advocated for more commonly now in the training space of, you know, one to two sessions per week, but longer duration, more sets, that sort of thing. Have you tried both? Do you have thoughts on, yeah, do you have thoughts on that and how they affect the physiology of our fingers? Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one because uh, where I like to start with any discussion of training and what works and what doesn't is with hard science, <laughs> But the problem is we don't have it <laughs> in climbing. I can't, I can't say, well, this study that compared all these different um, protocols for finger strength training had these different results. Those studies haven't been done. There have been a couple of small studies, but they're very small and they don't really test all the options. So really what you're going by is a mixture of applying knowledge of basic physiology, um, borrowing from other sports and personal experience. <laughs> and all of those are reasonably poor substitutes for, for hard evidence, like a real trial of like, well, let's test the idea. Mm. Let's compare like a, a small amount of fingerboarding every day to a bigger session three times a week or two times a week or whatever. I suspect that if you did run that study, the differences would not be very dramatic. <laughs> hmm. Okay. But I don't honestly know what those differences would be. So when, whenever I read um, articles or listen to people talking about finger strength training, I'm always curious to see, like, well, what's the evidence? Where, where is this coming from? And mostly it comes from, from experience. Um, and so I, I have tried to think, well, okay, well, that's fine, but I quite like to sort of test what happens if you do the opposite? And I've done that in many aspects of my training. And go, well, well, I think this is true. And it sort of makes sense. And that's what people do. But well, what happens if we do the opposite? <laughs> and in a sense, that's what I was doing at that time as well. Um, mm. 
when I've been observing sports, not just climbing, but also looking at other sports, I and mean, I've spent a bit of time studying sports science and, and looking at other sports, then one thing you kind of become aware of is that professional athletes train quite a lot and they tend to train every day. And they may do like a, a formal resistance session only a few times a week, but quite a lot of their other activities in the week, they really are still resistance training. They're still using their strength. So professional athletes train quite a lot and they seem to do okay with that. Um, so I thought, well, I, I'll, I'll sort of try training like that. So that was part of the experiment as well. Um, and it seemed to go well. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I didn't have problems with, with injury. If anything, it was the opposite. Because the period before that, I actually had quite significant problems with pulley injuries uh, for a number of years. I would just get one after the other. And, and I think I ended up getting almost, I don't think I've got any of my fingers that haven't had pulley injuries. Oh, wow. But they all occurred in that period before around 2005 when I started fingerboarding. And after that, they became far more rare. I've maybe mm. only had like maybe four minor pulley injuries, very, very minor strains in the 15 odd years since. Um, whether those two are coincidental or linked, I, mm. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it, it certainly didn't appear to cause uh, any problems with injury. Sure. And it certainly did seem to make my fingers significantly stronger. Um, and certainly since then, I've never been able to to have a, a jump in basic finger strength like that. Okay. But that's to be expected, of course, because, you know, if you're going from a level of finger strength around 13D going up to 14C, then you don't, you're losing headroom. You don't really have much headroom to keep going higher and higher unless you're very, you know, either young or genetically gifted or both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So, so I, I'm still, I think as time goes on, my view of what is likely to work in many aspects of training, I get less sure about things rather than more sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because the more, I, uh, the more I start to think, well, what's, what's the evidence? And the evidence is not always there. And, and um, I, I've also seen studies of different types of training protocols, both for strength training and for endurance training. And there are often small differences, like, you know, one protocol is maybe slightly better than another. The differences tend to be quite small. And sometimes, I mean, I, I recall reading a, a piece about, it's more related to endurance training, but it was like testing which is better going from the standard protocol of low intensity, high volume endurance training and progressing through the cycle towards higher intensity, lower volume. And so they did a, a, a trial with well-trained cyclists and one lot did that and the other lot did the opposite. They started at high intensity, low volume and they progressed to the opposite and there was no difference. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that's so, really so interesting. I think when you when you see evidence like that, either formal or anecdotal, where you're like, well, you know, this person did it this way and this person did it that way and they both had quite good results, then I start to think, well, maybe we're looking in the wrong place and that that aspect of the training is maybe not what's the most important thing. 
And increasingly, when I think of what's important in finger strength training, I think of level of effort. Uh, I suspect that that is really what's important. Hmm. And I think that would explains how you can get many different climbers who follow quite similar protocols. Some of them get really a lot stronger. Some of them barely seem to change. They're still like, their basic strength level does not move that much. And I'm, I much more favour the idea that it's level of effort that's really determining the, the differences. Hmm. <laughs> that is... I, I, I don't know that for sure as well. I think that needs to be tested. Yeah, that is really interesting because there's a lot of strength coaches in climbing nowadays that are saying that, you know, staying in that 70 to 80% effort zone might be the sweet spot where we still get really good strength gains, but we don't risk injury the way that we would, you know, trying to go to 100% every time. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and it, I think it depends a little bit on the on the exercise and the athlete. Okay. So I think there are some exercises. Again, this comes back to borrowing from other sports. So a lot of the discussion around that is around some exercises like, um, I don't know, deadlift or clean and jerk or something mm-hmm. like that. That is potentially risky. I mean, dead hanging is potentially risky as well if, if, you have, if you have poor form. But I think the idea is that form tends to suffer sometimes in some athletes as they approach maximal effort. So mm. it may be a, a safer bet to be slightly short of 100% maintain form and you still end up in the same place you get you get the results but you, you're you're lowering your risk of injury but if form is maintained maybe you're better being closer to 100 percent. i actually think that as far as i can see the research is not totally clear on on that issue okay i i mean i know i know um a sort of sounding um like a little bit sort of skeptical on that front and yeah, I guess that's because I am quite skeptical. And like, <laughs> uh, the, the the more I read, the less sure I get about many aspects of training. Yeah. Um, but one thing I I, I I do think that level of it, of effort is very important. And it, yeah, I mean, level of effort doesn't just apply to force; it also applies to form. Mm. So if you have if it's like concentration and focus gives you good form. And it also allows you to activate those those very reluctant muscle fibers that are not wanting to fire. <laughs> and if you get them firing, then hopefully they increase in size and they also increase in their ability to coordinate well. And that's what increases your strength, like both of those things together. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, interesting. So, so these days when I fingerboard, I still fingerboard regularly, um, several times a week. Uh, not always six times a week <laughs> mm-hmm. now. Um, but if I was going through a period where I didn't have immediate climbing goals, I probably would start to move towards that, like more more days on. Okay. But I'm not. I'm, I'm focusing more on the quality of each set than anything. That's that's what I put the most effort into. Hmm. Um, and I, and I, I must admit, I don't worry all that much about the differences between one protocol or another okay. for, for strength training anyway. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so it's like, it's like a never ending quest to be able to find that depth of effort in your mind, that <laughs> neural drive to the muscle to make, to make you be able to pull that a little bit harder. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and that that takes a lot of a lot of focus and, and effort. Mm. Um, and it, if you sort of step back from that and think, well, what what drives that? And to me, that's like absolute passion for wanting to get better mm. is what what drives that. So it's like a kind of layered approach. I start off with what I like about climbing, and then that drives what are my climbing goals. And I'm really motivated for those. And so I think, well, there's a there's there's something missing. I don't have the strength to achieve those goals. I need to get that strength. And what's going to get me that strength is being able to pull harder on that rung. <laughs> and then I, I'm able to focus all of that motivation in the moment of the set. Hmm. And it's almost like a ritual. Like whenever I've been coaching climbers in person, I always talk about that of like the the ritual of, of approaching the fingerboard where you kind of do the same things. Each, I mean, everyone has a routine and it's like as I'm getting up and chalking up my hands and then walking to the board, standing underneath it, it's, it's all a process building up to this huge effort and that's what I'm focusing on. And to me, that's that's really what, what makes a, a big difference in in the results you get from your training distilling all your passion for climbing down into that one set on the fingerboard <laughs> yep absolutely and and That's cool and that doesn't just translate to being able to pull a few kilos harder it's also critical as a, as a technique in itself the ability climbing is an interesting sport because on the crux of roots you have to be able to you know generate a lot of force very very quickly at the right split second just as you catch the hold you've got to try and hold on to it as quickly as possible so what happens within that fraction of a second dictates whether you fall off or, or stay on it's like climbing is really binary like, like that it's not like other sports where if, if you don't put in such a good performance you just go a little bit slower mm. <laughs> you either stick the hold or you fall off it's binary um, right. so it really matters exactly how hard you can pull in that in that moment but climbing also is a sport where you've got to save energy for that crux. So you've got to switch from one mindset to another very quickly. I think that's one of the things that makes it so difficult and interesting. Because mm. I'm sure you'll have seen uh, climbers who you look at them and you think, well, they, are, they would be well suited to being a, an explosive strength athlete, like a power lifter, where, you know, as soon as they step onto a boulder wall, they're just like, bang, bang, bang. Just, they're, they're able to just destroy you know the, the holds like crush everything and then you've got that sort of endurance phenotype where the person looks very, very relaxed on the wall and you can see that they're using minimal effort minimal muscle activation but unfortunately to be a to be a good climber you have to have a bit of both hmm. and that's 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 difficult especially if you naturally fall into one end of the continuum yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to return back to that uh, that period of 18 months and specific questions about fingerboarding. Um, mm. And again, if people are mm -hmm. curious about this, I'll link to your video in the show notes. I think it's you did a really good job of a very thorough job of unpacking all the details. But it sounds like there were kind of three main ingredients that went into your progression during that time. So you were fingerboarding six days a week. But then you would finish your fingerboarding, and as you said, it was a short 30-minute total workout. 
And it sounds like you were doing a lot of endurance circuits on real rock climbing and then also running, doing an easy run an hour mm -hmm. a day. And I'd mm -hmm. love to ask how important each of those components or ingredients were in, in your progression. It's, it sounds like you attribute most of it to the fingerboarding, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I would attribute it mostly to the fingerboarding, but the endurance circuits were also important to just maintain that balance, just that ability to have both endurance, and that's like a physical level, maintaining the muscle adaptations for endurance, but also at technical level, going back to what I was just saying of, of being able to uh, switch between, so all my, my fingerboard training is all directed to being able to pull harder, but the endurance training is, is a technical training in order to be able to save energy and maintain the ability to, to do that and climb in that way where you're just minimizing the, the force you're using and saving it for the, the crux. Um, because ultimately a lot of the routes that I wanted to do were long routes. Um, mm. So yeah, so that, that, that was important. And there's also another minor aspect to that, which is that the endurance training I was doing was outdoors at the crag and just being outdoors connected to the mountains, real rock and actually moving on real rock. Mm. All of that's important both for motivation and for movement technique. You know, if you want to, if the goal is to excel on real rock, then it's a good idea to to be able to to move on real rock a lot because climbing at its root is a technical sport. Mm. <laughs> um, the running, I think, was not so important. Okay. I primarily did it um, actually as a means to relax at a very very gentle pace. You know, it was yeah with a low a low heart rate. Um, it's just just to be able to relax and and think. Um, I suppose at, at that time in my life as well, like um, my my life was quite simple and very focused on climbing. And you know, it's, it's easy to get very intense and and sort of very attached to your your climbing goals. And I found that running was a nice way to process all of my thoughts around that each day and then let and then kind of let go of it <laughs> okay um and and be and be relaxed uh, that's one thing that i've noticed throughout my my climbing life is that i definitely have the ability to get quite intense and and quite driven and focused and that's an absolutely crucial ingredient to to doing projects but it's a kind of double-edged sword mm. it can also be quite difficult to manage both in yourself and you know in life in general uh, so I found that the running was just a quite a nice way to relax and just allow me to be on a nice even keel <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay um, let's go back to the circuits can you quickly describe what those looked like at the time yeah yeah so um, I, I would say that if anyone's familiar with um, like classic endurance training for running or cycling, it would be like the climbing equivalent of zone two training, where okay. most of it was very low intensity. So I had this nice circuit where, I mean, if, if I wanted to, I could go around it all day. Uh, and it was a, just a nice wall. It was almost better than a climbing wall, really, because there was many different ways you could go. And I, I would kind of go right round it and then round to a, a shakeout on one side. Mm. 
and just hang out there and and just be really used to the position of of relaxing into a shakeout and so I'm, I'm quite weak on that really i'm not i'm not really a great endurance climber and i'm not really great at relaxing on routes i, I tend to be slightly more erring on the side of um like a kind of power athlete <laughs> i'm oh, better at like going ah, and 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 having a kind of bouldering approach to to climbing uh, so it was very good training for me even just to stay still on a shakeout and just relax and you know after five minutes you, you kind of find a new level of relaxation <laughs> mm-hmm. and you find that oh actually i am i am recovering really well here and um you're just managing all aspects both the physical and mental and then i go off around the circuit a bit more and go around it a few more times so i'd like be on the on the wall for maybe 40 minutes and then i would you know take a breather for 10 minutes and have a drink and then i would go and do the same but also i would mix that up where i, I had an eliminate version of the circuit which was much harder and was maybe okay. i don't know 13b or 13c or something so every so often i would go along that bit so you, you've already got a, a light pump before you even start you've been on the wall for a long time and then you do this this harder circuit in the middle so like a running it'd be like the running equivalent of of um you know running like 20k but then doing like a couple of 400 meter hmm. um sprints in the in the middle and mm-hmm. which is the kind of thing a lot of runners would would do um i mean i i i didn't i didn't sort of carefully design that and that's one thing that i've i've thought about a lot in endurance training for climbing is that I quite often in my own training I'll I'll almost design the protocol around the circuit (laughs) because I sometimes find that if you if you focus on the protocol first sometimes the circuits don't really match what you want to do very well Mm. either in difficulty or the character of the moves or the angle or whatever or you're just not fit enough or or whatever so I sometimes like sort of start with well what have do I have available to me, and then I, I kind of do what makes sense based on that. And I, and I like that because it means that you tend to um, uh, do more of the training, <laughs> and and complete the training, and it's enjoyable. And again, it comes back to this issue of like, well I don't know perhaps if I'd done it with a different protocol would it have made a difference? Would it be better or worse? I honestly don't really know. I don't sure. think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. That's quite a lot of climbing. So it sounds like you were doing two sets of 40 minutes on the wall six days a week on that mm. circuit. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or actually three three sets, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's not, it's, it's, it's not nearly, a lot of people say that. It's, it's, oh, it's a lot. That sounds like a lot. It didn't feel like a lot because yeah. it's so, it was such a low level. It was really, really easy. So, mm-hmm. Um, arcing basically yeah exactly and yeah, mostly yeah. Uh, around around that level um so yeah i i certainly left the crag not feeling not feeling tired i i, I wouldn't say that i could i could jump on and and you know like knock out a v11 straight afterwards <laughs> but I, I, uh-huh. I but i certainly could knock out a v9 no problem afterwards okay you know i, I I wouldn't. I wasn't leaving the crag going like, "Oh, I'm wasted now." Right. Yeah. So it's so really, it, really it was gentle quite, intensity. It was gentle, low load, high volume, um, 
And the fingerboard training was high intensity, but very low volume. You know, just a few sets per grip type. Yeah. You know, the, the, the time under load per session is like a minute and a half or so. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's really not a lot of exercise. Yeah. So again, even after the fingerboard session, you know, don't, don't, didn't feel tired at all. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was still able, if there was a nice day in between all that climbing, I'd still be able to go out try climbing in the mountains and have a full hmm. day out try climbing and be, be fine. And so I wasn't, it wasn't nearly, doing one of those days was not nearly as tiring as like going to the wall, going to the gym and, 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 um, and doing a big bouldering session all day or, you know, doing a, a full sport climbing day. You know, it was, it, it was less less tiring than that. Yeah, and that's okay. why I was able to do it multiple times a day. Because in general, I don't I don't think I train as much as many other climbers do. <laughs> okay. You know, I I don't I just don't think um I've never felt that I've had I've got a capacity to really do all that much training and it certainly on trips. Um I take a lot of rest days on on trips and I, I don't often tend to climb multiple days in a row unless it's pretty low volume. That's fascinating to me, that combination of arc training with with strength training for your fingers. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this kind of in a more global sense, because there's, you know, there, there seems to be two main camps in strength training, in the climbing space at least, where, you know, a lot of people are saying, if you're trying to get stronger, just focus on strength, like let everything else go. Because if you also are balancing endurance with that, it's going to, you know, take away from your, your ability to adapt. We only have so much adaptation potential, Mm -hmm. but then what you're doing sounds a lot more like an idea that I've come across from gymnastics training where gymnasts will do their very high intensity strength training and focus on trying to, you know, build more, neurological strength or connective tissue strength but then they'll they'll mix that in with these what they call feeding sessions where they're feeding the tissues by doing really high volume low intensity work you know for example if they're focusing on tumbling and they're doing a really hard tumbling pass and impacting at a high percentage of their body weight on their ankles and and all their connective tissue they'll warm up by doing like hundreds of calf raises and getting a lot of gentle movement in and getting blood flow to kind of, I guess the theory is that, you know, your connective tissue, it doesn't have its own vasculature, so it doesn't get as much blood flow. So they do these high volume sessions to kind of feed those tissues. Mm, And I guess mm. I'm wondering, you've done a lot of hangboarding since then. Do you feel like maybe there is some magic in combining the arc training with the strength training to get the blood flow to your fingers and, and, you know, feed those tendons basically, or have you had other chapters of your training where you've just focused more on strength and not had the combination and had equally good results? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, broadly, I think that there are often, in training, there are often multiple ways to get to the same place Mm. and that, that, People might a- approach their way to build a, a training program in different ways, and the result ends up being the same. I mean, it, it depends on the individual person and their level and uh, what they're trying to do. But broadly, I, I think that that holds. And also, 
when it comes down to it, with that detail of like which is better, this this protocol or that protocol, in many cases I I don't honestly know from looking at, at the research. It's not clear to me how to adapt the the research from other sports in climbing. The observation I keep coming back to with climbing is that there are elite climbers around the world who have very structured training programs and do really a lot of training. And there are other climbers who just go climbing, who are at the same level. (laughs) (laughs) And I sort of like think, well, we have to sort of account for that that observation. Hmm. Um, These people both seem to end up in the same place how do they mm. how do they do that it <laughs> possibly indicates to me that the differences between their approaches end up being quite small and what's actually important lies lies elsewhere hmm. um when it comes down to it with for climbing ability in general finger strength is definitely important and i think finger strength comes from the ability to pull like hell on holes (laughs) and you Mm -hmm. you can you know you can do that on a route or on a boulder problem outside or on a fingerboard or both so how you mix them uh, may be less important than than how like what's going through your mind at the moment when you actually pull on the hole (laughs) Mm -hmm. um yeah so it's it's kind of it's a kind of strange position to be in because like it's almost like the more the more I look at this the less certain I, I get about all of these <laughs> these aspects and and the more I, I don't I don't really know that may change I mean um, there are some people who are who are collecting um, you know data on 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 different training programs and we may start to get some more detailed information that's climbing specific that starts to allow us to tease these things out a little bit um, and get some more solid answers on that. But so far, uh, I, I tend to like to build my own training or, or other, you know, if, if I've been coaching others, I, you know, I just start with the person and what and what their, their weaknesses are and go from there. I mean, I, there are some general aspects. I suppose the general aspects are that your fingers fingers can never be strong enough <laughs> but again it's that, that observation climbing is a technical sport first and foremost and so the the endurance training you can view it as endurance training but i still view it primarily as technique training mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't divorce climbing from from a movement skill sport so i'm slightly wary of any training program that doesn't involve quite a lot of moves on the rock hmm. And if those are at low intensity, they're they're not really tiring. They're they're not. I, I guess at some level, then it might start to clash or interfere with the, the strength training and uh, the the effects from that. But I think that's not a problem that applies to to most people, if anyone um, in climbing. Although I, I can't be certain about that. Okay, I have a couple more specific hangboard questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you advocate for doing all of your hangs with a bent arm. And I've seen in some of your videos, it seems like you do a lot of one-arm pull-ups or at least try your best to do one-arm pull-ups while you're doing mm-hmm. the finger strength mm-hmm. training. 
Um, yeah. Tell me why you do that as opposed to doing your hangs with a straight arm and then working on arm strength through weighted pull-ups, for instance, or something something like that. I mean, I don't have a scientific reason, particularly, for, for doing hangs with a bent arm. Um, I just personally feel more comfortable doing them with a, with a bent arm. And I also feel that uh, I also just feel it's slightly easier to to pull harder on the on the edge mm-hmm. if I'm pulling with my arm as well. <laughs> I do find it's just slightly. I mean, I, I, it's very slight. I think it's absolutely fine to do hangs with um, with a straight arm. I think some climbers like need to be a little bit careful to to engage their shoulders, especially if their shoulders are not in great shape. Uh, but honestly, I don't think it matters that much. I think if oh. you want to do hangs on a straight arm. I think that's absolutely fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how much it matters. Okay. I think I've heard you talk about um, elbow ten- tendonitis as a factor with straight arm hangboarding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be. Okay. It could be. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, c- I certainly think if if you have injured the, the common flexor tendon in the inside of your elbow that climbers often have pain from, that's golfer's elbow, if you have that tendon injured and it's already unhappy then I think being either straight armed or totally locked off often aggravates that tendon more and certainly when I went through quite a few years of having golfer's elbow problems I I found that I had to I had to stop fingerboarding altogether for a while but I could still train on a 45 board and I think that was because mostly you end up with a slightly bent arm and you're never locking off in the same way that you are on less steep ground and you're never really straight arming unless you're on very easy terrain mm-hmm. and then it doesn't really matter too much um but but yeah fingerboarding would would kind of aggravate it <laughs> but i must admit in in the end my approach at first was with golfer's elbow was i was quite sort of scared of it i was very very scared to aggravate it and then by the time I've had it for about five years, I sort of stopped being scared of it. <laughs> and then I actually started training again. And I must admit that's when it also started to improve. Oh, interesting. And I, so I, la- it- I laterally thought that maybe it was a bit of an error um, to be too too afraid of it. Huh. So I, I think with, with tendon injuries, you're just treading this fine balance. Like if you really annoy it too much, then you could be contributing to the damage. But if you back off and avoid aggravating it at all, that's also contributing to the damage. Hmm. <laughs> so there's a, there's, a, there's a bit of a fine line to tread. And I found that once I started doing a bit more basic training again and actually trying to do more things like pull-ups and exercising it in that locked-off position and straight-arm position, um, then... I did start to see some improvement. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, I, I recall that you also did a pretty long video on Golfer's Elbow too, and I'll link to that in the mm. show notes. Um, some of yeah, the biggest yeah. tips you have for, for addressing elbow tendonitis for people. Yeah, I mean, that's I spent, I spent a long time, especially when I was writing my second book. I wrote, I wrote this book about climbing injuries, and, and I spent a lot of time thinking about golfer's elbow. It was actually that injury that, that first motivated me to write that book okay. um, and, and look into 10 injury, injuries and, and how to treat them. And uh, so I, I, I read a lot of the, 
the research and I also went to see a lot of the people who are doing the research and spoke to them in person. And again, that was another aspect where the, the, the more I learned about that subject, the more I realised how little is known about why tendons get injured in the first place and why they recover. <laughs> the only things that seem to be really clear is that loading is essential for hmm. tendons to improve their health and, and disuse only makes them worse. Hmm. However, if you're injured, then you know you have to be a bit careful that you don't over overdo it. But it seems like the general movement is away from like long periods of of rest and really backing off. That just seems to contribute to the problems. But what what was unclear and is still unclear is really what the root cause of these injuries are. Like hmm. why. Why do tendons fail to adapt? They really ought to. <laughs> it shouldn't really be the case that um, humans are able to strengthen their, their muscles, but their tendons should fail to keep up. That just doesn't hmm. really make evolutionary sense. <laughs> right. There must, be, there must be another factor, an environmental factor, that, that causes them to have some issue with either their adaptation or some degradation of their structure. And that is, I think the plot thickens on that. It's still not entirely clear. Do you have any theories on that? Um, many, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, uh, you know, I mean, the first thing I would say about them is that they, they lack a firm, a firm evidence base. There are many possible reasons um, related to chemical changes within tendons that could be for all sorts of things. I mean, there are many molecules that are important. You know, the things like nitric oxide. I mean, um, I remember actually looking at the research on nitric oxide, which is just an important biological molecule and plays a role in tendon metabolism. And I could see that there had been some trials done with nitric oxide donor patches, like actually placing them on your, your elbow. Uh, hmm. as a way to donate nitric oxide to the tendon. And they did seem to have some positive effect. And I remember actually getting my doctor to prescribe me those patches and trying them. And wow. they, they, I, they, I, couldn't, I couldn't actually use the treatment because they gave me such bad hypotensive headaches and I had to discontinue oh. them straight away. Huh. I just did that as an experiment. So there's, there's that. So there's that aspect. And the main way, well, one of the main ways we, we make nitric oxide is by getting in the sun. <laughs> Huh. And that's so sun exposure is one thing that humans in the modern age lack that they didn't before. So that could be one explanation. Interesting. And another explanation is that um glycation of, of proteins in, in collagen appears to be at least associated with their the degradation of, of quality and strength in those tendons. One observation from the medical literature is that people with diabetes who have high blood sugar on a chronic basis uh, are much more prone to tendon injuries. So hmm. things like golfers and tennis elbow is very common in diabetics, huh. <laughs> both older people who have type 2 diabetes, but also younger people who have type 1 diabetes that's poorly controlled. So could chronic elevation of blood glucose play a role? Maybe. That's hmm. definitely not clear from the research, but there is, there is some that's out there. Other things that have changed in our environment in the last 100 years are exposure to different uh, fats in the diet, especially linoleic acid from seed oils. Mm -hmm. 
That plays a role in many aspects of cellular function across the whole body. One thing that tendons have is they have very few mitochondria um, for producing energy and running their metabolism. So, I mean, one way you could think about this, I don't even know if it's the right way to think about it, but they don't have much headroom to lose either quality or quantity of mitochondria. And linoleic acid does cause chemical changes in mitochondria, their structure, which make them more prone to oxidative stress and damaged by oxidative stress. So perhaps that plays a role in their degradation. That's something that's, there's some mechanistic papers out there that, would suggest that was plausible, but definitely no direct evidence. Hmm. So there's that plus a million and one other possible <laughs> things. <laughs> um, so so these days, uh, the way I sort of approach trying to stay healthy and avoid these injuries is to just start off with the base of having a healthy lifestyle to start with. Um, good sleep, good management of stress in general, good diet. I think diet plays a really big role. Um, what aspects of good diet might play into that is very difficult to tease out. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but certainly it ties with the observation that um, improving, well, certainly improving my own diet appears to have reduced the frequency of the injuries that I've had. Or um, that could be entirely coincidental. No one mm. can. No one can know. <laughs> right, right. But it's certainly it's certainly not making it worse. Mm. That's very interesting. Let's put a pin in that because I definitely want to come back to your diet and, is, in particular, the current diet experiment that you're doing. Mm, sure. Yeah. And this could be a long tangent, but before we, I, I want to go back to a couple more fingerboarding things. But before that, I would love to to hear more about linoleic acid and seed oils, because that's something that seems like there's growing consensus and research around just how damaging those are and how prevalent they are in our modern food system. Um, what mm. are some examples of those types of seed oils and what kind of foods are they found in and, and what would you recommend that people avoid? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean to start off with, I'm not entirely sure I would recommend people avoid them. Okay. I avoid them, but <laughs> I don't know if there's enough. There's I don't know if there's enough evidence to to recommend that everyone avoids them. Sure. I, I I'm it's it's a it's an ingredient that um, from the from the research I'm I'm happy to to leave out of my diet largely. Certainly the seed oils I'm happy to leave out entirely, um, but I don't think there's enough clear evidence yet to say they're definitely to be avoided and under no circumstance could they be neutral or, or beneficial. Um, so starting off with that caveat that it, it's far from clear. <laughs> um, but I mean, one aspect is that there, we are sort of naive in an evolutionary sense to having large amounts of linoleic acid in diet. That's not necessarily a problem. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. Um, but that's a good place to start from is to think, well, if they've been in, in the human diet for a long time, then that raises the the likelihood that we're fairly, our physiology is fairly well adapted to absorbing and metabolizing them in, in, a, in a kind of safe way as part of our, our normal life cycle. And so as far as I can see, they would, in a, in a sort of ancestral sense, before the industrial revolution, 
think linoleic acid would have been around 1-2% of total calories in human diets. Um, they would have increased even bef slightly bef before that with the change to agricultural ways of life for humans. But then it, it was really when uh, it was discovered how to detoxify cottonseed oil uh, around uh, 120-odd years ago, that's really when they started to come into the human diet uh, as they were a waste product, but then once they were detoxified, they could be used as a, an ingredient, as an alternative fat. Um, and then since then, they've just kind of skyrocketed. Mm. Uh, so linoleic acid has gone from, you know, a percent of total calories to, you know, well, I think it's like 8%, it was 8% of calories around 15 years ago. And I think there are a couple of papers that are showing that it's continuing to rise wow. beyond that. So you'll find that in, in, the, in the seed oils that people cook with, you know, sunflower oil, um, safflower corn oil is a common one in the US. But you'll also find them really in many foods that come in a box and have a list of ingredients. <laughs> mm, more processed foods. Yeah. I mean, I think in the US, as far as I know, of total calories, sugar white flour and vegetable oil make up 60% of total calories in the US oh, and the UK wow. is not far behind. <laughs> so most processed foods that come in a box are some combination of those or those ingredients. Okay. And so the kind of low hanging fruit diet wise, I think is just, just taking those out of your diet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You'll automatically increase nutrient density, um, but you would also lower that, that linoleic acid. And that, that may be important because unsaturated fats have a whole range of effects in the body. Um, again, there's problems interpreting this because the epidemiological studies, that is the studies that look at people over time and seeing what diseases they get. If you look at those, you'll see that people who eat more vegetable oils uh, tend to have less problems with obesity, heart disease, and diabetes, but uh, does that correlation equal causation? It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Can you expand on that a little bit? Like, what for people that aren't familiar, what are epidemiological studies? I'd love to hear you just give a quick overview of what that means and hmm. how is that different from a yeah an experiment from an a, from a scientific trial. intervention experiment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a double blind or whatever yeah, yeah. else. So most studies in the world of nutrition anyway tend to be epidemiological studies. And that's just where you don't do an experiment. You don't change anyone's diet and see what happens. You just look at different populations or one population. Like, in fact, many of the biggest studies are actually US studies, like the Nurses Health Study that's been managed by Harvard University, um, where they look at a population like you know, 50,000 odd nurses in the, across the US. And some of them will eat slightly more linoleic acid. Some of them will eat more saturated fat. Some of them will eat more carbohydrate. Some of them will eat more protein. And you look at that group of people for 20 years, 50 years, whatever, and you see who dies of what diseases <laughs> or who gets what diseases. Mm. And then you see if that correlates with aspects of their diet or other aspects of their lifestyle. 
And then so you have that correlation. And that correlation doesn't mean that A caused B. It could mean that, <laughs> uh, but it, it may not mean that. And so once you have identified that there's a correlation, such as some studies show that there's a correlation between red meat intake and colon cancer incidence, it's a very weak correlation, but it's there. Then you can start to say, well, but can we test that idea if one is connected to the other? Because the correlation is, uh, you can't rely on it because things, there are, there are plenty of correlations that have no like causative relationship with the outcome. For example, the classic thing is yellow fingers. If people have yellow fingers when they're young, they develop lung cancer when they're older. But if I paint my fingers yellow, it doesn't mean I'm going to get lung cancer. <laughs> I have to be a smoker to get lung cancer. And smoking is the exposure that gives me both yellow fingers and lung cancer. Mm. So it, there, it could be that there's something else that you're not seeing that causes the, the association between two things. And that's why you have to do the experimental study, an interventional trial, ideally a randomized controlled double-blind trial, so that you're sure that the thing you changed was the only thing you changed and that, and then you can say, okay, one thing causes the other. Mm. Um, and they're very, very hard to do in the world of nutrition. And so there's not so many of them. There are some, and actually a lot of them are kind of older studies because that was back in the day when governments actually paid proper money for research. Mm. <laughs> yeah. There's another example that comes to mind. Maybe we can use this to highlight the difference between epidemiology and scientific research. You shared a really interesting Instagram post recently. I, th I think you got a lot of flack for talking about eggs and eating a lot of eggs in your diet. <laughs> and then yes, you shared yes, a, did, a yes. really, it was just fantastic. It was a really great post and a great breakdown of what some of the issues you saw with uh, some of the research that was being thrown at you as evidence that eggs were going to kill you, basically. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak to that? Uh, sure, yeah, yeah. So um, there, meat, meat and eggs are, are one aspect that um, and the, if you ask like a good number of people on the street uh, whether, whether eggs are healthy, a lot of them will say, no, eggs are not healthy, because either they, they'll say either because they contain saturated fat or because they contain cholesterol or they'll just say oh well I read about this study that showed that people that eat eggs get more heart disease and there are plenty of news articles that say that and they, they're generally referencing epidemiological studies that show a very small correlative relationship between eggs and heart disease but when you actually dig into the details and you think, well, let's look at these people that eat more eggs and get more heart disease. What you find is that what they eat is cake. <laughs> cake has <laughs> eggs in it. <laughs> well, the, 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 the sources of egg in the, in the standard you know, Western diet tend to be sweets and cakes and desserts and junk food in general. They're not like people eating scrambled eggs on their own for breakfast. Right. <laughs> so you get this thing where there's an ingredient which is carried along with the junk food diet 
but that's not necessarily what's actually causing the problem. And it's the same story with, with red meat. Mm. You know, if you if you look at how people tend to consume red meat, it's in their McDonald's Happy Meal. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or it's like... Along with the big gulp and fries. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Or at their barbecue when they're, they're down in five beers at the same time. Mm. So it's like, well, all of those things are going to correlate, like cake consumption, beer consumption, smoking, lack of exercise. They all track with the disease outcomes. And you can't just pick one ingredient like eggs that are in the cake and say, oh, it must be that. Or or the, or the red meat that's in your Happy Meal and say, oh, yes, one correlates with the other. Therefore, that's the problem. We should re- reduce it. That, that, that doesn't make sense. And I think that's um, how you get nutritional science has got itself into such a deep hole <laughs> where there's conflicting headlines coming out left, right and centre. And there's a, you know, a lot of people are just very, very confused um, about, about what's, what's healthy food. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is incredibly confusing. I've talked about this on the show, but I've, I've come around to eating meat again. Um, I was largely vegetarian mm-hmm. for a number of years. And in the last few years, I've come around to eating meat. And I mean, I've spent probably thousands of hours listening to podcasts about this and reading books about it and and reading articles and it is incredibly nuanced and confusing and there's so many different points of view but uh to to your point Mm. to something that you just said one of the the biggest light bulb moments for me in understanding epidemiology and how that was being presented in articles was you know when you think about the type of people that choose to be vegetarian or vegan, they're also so much more likely to exercise regularly, to drink less alcohol, to not smoke cigarettes. Um, you know, it's it's been so associated with being healthy in the mainstream mm-hmm. for so many years that most people that choose those sorts of diets, they're also interested in all these other aspects of health. And it's it's really difficult to to say definitively which ones are causing uh, the issues. So, yeah, you know, red meat gets right. thrown yeah. under the bus, but it's it seems to be a little more complicated than that. You can use epidemiology to get some useful insights. And actually, the null results, I think, are more useful than the, the actual correlations that you see. If you see a study where there's no correlation, that can often give you a more useful picture than a study that does give you a correlation. Because if you look at epidemiology in the US and say, well, does red meat consumption or egg consumption correlate with all these disease outcomes? And you're like, well, yes, there's a small correlation, but a good few studies show that. But then you look at a different culture like Europe or Asia, and then you see no correlation or the opposite correlation. Hmm. Then that tells you that you're probably looking in the wrong place. Interesting. There is maybe something else going on. So if you see epidemiological studies conflicting with each other that probably tells you that there's there's something else going on uh-huh. <laughs> and i think that's when you get closer to you know being over the target <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> an understanding wow. what's, what's really going on yeah that's really interesting yeah but uh, th- this this comes back to a kind of broader point which relates to the injuries thing as well that um you know, I was just thinking about that. It's like what made me end up writing a, a book about climbing injuries. It's like about 
what you were talking about, about spending a lot of time trying to get to the bottom of problems. And I think a lot of people try to just think, oh, I just want the answer. Like, I just want to find someone that I can trust to tell me the answer. <laughs> but, and it would be nice if that worked out well, but generally it doesn't. Mm. And even, even very good scientists can get to the wrong answer and interpret even their own results quite poorly. Um, so I think what at first blush seems like the long way around is actually the shortcut, which is to start off with a sound understanding of scientific methodology and then just go to the studies and just see what the results are. And then if you're able to understand what those, those basic results mean, what those numbers mean, like if you look at the association between eggs and diabetes, what's the size of that association? Is it really meaningful? <laughs> you know, are we looking at something that's really significant or is it quite weak? And actually it's very, very weak. And if you just look at a handful of studies and they're, the effect is on either side of zero, then you can start to say, well, maybe the effect is actually zero. <laughs> um, and it also helps you to understand that there's a huge difference in between the, the epidemiological studies and the actual trials where something is really tested. You know, th those, those are quite high, high, high value. Unfortunately, they're few and far between. There, mm -hmm. there have been some. But just thinking of, of red meat, I mean, like, I think, I think it may still be the largest nutritional trial that has been done, which was the Women's Health Initiative, um, which uh, ran for about eight years. And it, it, it got, um, it was a study of 50,000 women, 20,000 of them, they got them to reduce their, their red meat intake and, and focus their diet more on fruits and vegetables which they did, and they also ate, I think it was 360 calories less per day for across that, that eight years, which is a really significant drop in energy intake. <laughs> for eight years, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the study, there was no difference in their breast cancer rates or in obesity, and I think in colorectal cancer as well. Um, no differences. And actually the intervention group, their waist circumference was significantly larger. Huh. Unfortunately, they did not, they, it was a small but significant difference. So you, you think, well, they didn't measure with DEXA and things like that, you know, lean mass and, and fat mass, but that possibly indicates an unfavorable change towards less muscle mass and more weight around the center, which is not really a good picture. But in, either way, like that decrease in their intake of animal foods and switch towards fruit and vegetables was not of benefit in, hmm. in, a, in a very, very large trial. Hmm. And there are other trials that are out there that, that are interesting and, and, and do show these things. Mm -hmm. So, so in, in general, I think, you know, focus on the understanding the, the scientific methodology helps you to, to look at articles in the media and think, well, what is this article saying? What's the, the, the evidence? Are, is the, the, the headline of the article really reflecting what the study says? And most of the time it doesn't. And the epidemiological evidence is very poor quality. Almost all of it, the effect sizes are, are so small that the likelihood that there's statistical noise is very great. Hmm.
Yeah. <laughs> so they're not to be ignored altogether, but right. they're they they are useful at times, but they just have to be kept in context. And ideally, you're looking at the the trial evidence if if possible. And mm. and I think if you do that together with thinking in an evolutionary framework, I think that's kind of underutilized in the nutrition world. Thinking like, well, does this make sense in terms of the evolution of our species? Then I think you start things start to fit in a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, that that is actually really interesting. And I wonder if you could expand on that just a little bit, because I'm surprised at the the number of people that seem to just brush that off immediately. Um, people tend to think like, well, we've been eating, you know, agricultural foods and grains and whatnot for at least multiple generations. So that seems like it'd be plenty of time for us to adapt and humans are incredibly adaptable and and at some level, all that might be true, but I find the mm-hmm. evolutionary lens to be a really valuable way to to at least look at this research, kind of like you're saying. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you, about that lens and, and how you think about that evolutionary science. Yeah, well, um, where to start with that? So, the, I mean, the first aspect, I suppose, is that agriculture has been around for around 10,000 years. That's not a long time in genetic time <laughs> to adapt. It's true, though, that humans are very adaptable as omnivores. That has been absolutely key to our success. So none of, none of evolutionary nutritional science is definitive, that's for sure. <laughs> and it is open to interpretation. Um, but there are a few sort of hard facts. I mean... One disputed fact that well has been disputed in the past in the past has been to what extent were animal foods a feature of the human diet pre-agriculture, i.e. during the vast bulk of the period that our species has been around. <laughs> and to me that there's a very strong piece of evidence that the animal foods form the bulk of our diet, which is the, the isotope data where you look at the the isotopes left in human bone remains and that shows that animal foods were at least frequently a very large part of our diet, if not most of our diet. Then the second layer is, well, does that fit with our physiology? And I guess one of the first places to look is gut physiology. And, you know, we we have um, lost our colon relatively compared to much earlier primates and lost mm-hmm. our cecum um, and expanded our small intestine and also made our stomach very highly acidic, more acidic than the, the scavengers even. So all aspects of our gut physiology point towards a diet that's fairly heavy in animal foods. And then you look at, well, what other adaptations are there? And the key adaptation is growing a very, very large brain. <laughs> <laughs> in, in order to be able to uh, hunt in a coordinated way. Hmm. Um, so and there, there are multiple others. I mean, the other thing was like the ability to, ha- our shoulders, the human shoulder has the ability to throw that other animals just do not have. So really the key thing was once we could start to throw things at animals, <laughs> that was an absolutely key adaptation. So we have many adaptations in our diet that that point to a diet high in animal foods. So that 
provides a sort of basis to start from where if you're going to say that animal foods in general are unhealthy, then you have to sort of say, well, why then are we so adapted to them? That doesn't really that doesn't really fit. Hmm. Yeah. So that's I think that's where I would I would start with the looking at ancestral diets. Hmm. But it's obviously also clear that um, we can do very well on you know very plant heavy diets, and there are you know lots of studies looking at populations around the world, modern populations obviously, uh, that do do very well on those diets. Um, so yeah, it's true that uh, humans are very adaptable and can do well on a, on a range of diets. If you had to pick a few kind of biggest bang for your buck or, or, or maybe like most grounding principles to think about with diet, if someone maybe that spans the whole spectrum from, you know, vegan to much more animal based, mm -hmm. what are some of the kind of key principles that you think apply to everybody? Do you have thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Number one would be nutrient density. Okay. So no matter what dietary approach you decide to take, if you can choose foods that maximize nutrient density, then you're likely to be winning on all fronts, both in terms of general health and also in sport performance. And, you know, that's that's totally possible to do on, on a range of diets. Some diets, it's a lot harder than others. Yeah, so the, there, are, there are some diets where you just will need to supplement some foods. There are some, some diets where you might not need to supplement, but you would need to be careful with every meal. Okay. For example, if you think of um, a vegetarian diet or particularly a vegan diet, even with B12 supplemented, it's, it's like the analogy that's often given is the, the low-flying plane. There's not much headroom for, for error. Okay. So if you if you if you lose a little bit of headroom with nutrient density with one pizza, it's hard to catch up because the the nutrient density is not so high per calorie of food. So to eat a substantial amount of the micronutrients, that generally comes with a fair bit of energy, and you can only eat so much energy. And I certainly, as climbers, we're trying to not eat huge amounts of energy. Uh, not not just not too much to store excess body fat, then there's not there's not a lot of headroom there. So you ha have to be quite careful, quite disciplined, and you you need to have a fair bit of knowledge to make sure that you're not just missing something. And obviously, there's a whole range of micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals. So it is possible to to fall short on on one or two, or maybe more than that. So no matter. What dietary approach you take, focusing on nutrient density is likely to make you feel and perform well and just avoid any unanticipated problems with deficiency. It doesn't necessarily need to be frank deficiency. There, frank deficiencies are not that common in the Western world for most nutrients, but subclinical deficiency is common in many nutrients. and. Hmm. You know, we are a, a population who are trying to not just survive. <laughs> we're trying to do really well. We're trying to get the maximum response per unit training. And for that, we really need to make sure that we're, we're shooting for optimal, not just minimal. Hmm. And there is a bit of an issue with like recommended minimum values for different nutrients. Protein is a good example of that. 
many people think, oh, we're eating too much, we're eating too much protein. The minimum that we have to, to eat is this amount. And it's like, well, yeah, but we're not shooting for the minimum. I don't think we should be shooting for the minimum. We're shooting hmm. for optimum. And that can be a lot harder to, to define. So because it's a lot harder to define, people maybe don't focus on it as much as they should. But if you focus on nutrient density, then all of these potential problems in nutrition tend to take care of themselves. And, and, I, and I like that because I, although I'm interested in nutrition, and, and I'm in, as I am about all aspects of training, I don't really want to spend a lot of time thinking about either training or nutrition. <laughs> I just, I want to like eat good food that makes me feel good and feel healthy. And then I want to go climbing. <laughs> so I have spent a lot of effort thinking about, well, what's a nutrient dense diet that I want to eat and I'm, I'm happy to eat. And then once I've sort of made those choices, then I, I stick to those and I don't really worry about it that much. Mm, mm-hmm. Your last comment was pretty funny, given that I think you have a master's in both sports physiology and in nutrition at this point, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, I mean, I, I don't I don't mind getting into the details and, and looking at all of these things in detail. I do enjoy that. But at the same time, well, there, there are other aspects. I mean, in part, what got me interested in, in looking in more detail at, at nutrition in recent years was actually more related to to weight, and uh, that was one oh, thing yeah. that I was I found that I was expending a fair bit of mental energy trying to exert control over, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to be able to find a way to let that take care of itself more, so that I could refocus back on what I wanted to be thinking about, which is just like you know, how do I do this move or like what are the conditions tomorrow or whatever, you know. I don't really want to spend a lot of time thinking like, oh, I'm sort of struggling with this one aspect. So that's mm. that's actually what got me interested in the detail of it, was trying to figure that out uh, because, um, yeah, I, I didn't have a very good um, handle on it before. <laughs> mm. Yeah, same for me, actually. That's That was kind of the impetus that led me down my own rabbit hole. Mm. with this whole thing mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the strength to weight ratio. Um, yeah. Let's come back to that. I have some some questions on that and actually a couple listener questions on that. But And this is going to feel like a 90-degree turn at this point since we've wandered so far down. But I, I would actually love to ask a couple more fingerboard questions. Um, oh, first sure, about yeah. your grip selection. So you, it sounds like you train primarily three grips, half crimp, open four, and then open three finger or three finger drag. That's what a lot of people call it. Yeah. Um, I recently did a finger strength assessment and uh, my background is somewhat similar to what it sounds like yours was at the point where you made that big leap. I've spent the last seven years climbing at Smith Rock and I've gotten very mm-hmm. good at at least thin face climbing, you know, technical style climbing. And my my crimp strength as far as ability to hold on to small holds is pretty decent. My pocket strength is decent, but put me on a big edge with a lot of weight on my fingers, particularly in like a half crimp. And I'm very, very weak. I actually just did this Mm. assessment and even on a large tension rung, which is about 32 millimeters, um, I Uh had to take about 16 kilograms off of my body weight to hang with one arm for for five seconds. So that's about 35 pounds off. And I'm curious, there's a lot of strength coaches that 
seem to think that the half crimp is kind of like the primary grip because it translates to everything else reasonably well. And so they exclusively mm-hmm. focus on training that. What are your thoughts on choosing just one grip like that versus the combination that you've chosen? Do you think that training the, the combination, do they all help each other? Or if you have a definitive weakness, would it be better just to focus on the one thing that you're weakest at? Sure, yeah. Um, rather disappointingly, the honest answer is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've, not, I've not really seen any evidence either way that... Okay. You know, there's, there's, there's not the study that's been done looking at, well, okay, this group of climbers trained in this way and, and got stronger. So, like, what do I default to? Well, looking at personal experience, um, uh, if I go right back in my own climbing history, uh, I used to feel much stronger on full crimp and extremely weak on, on open hand myself. Mm-hmm. And... So that just pushed me more in the direction of relying on that cryptite for everything. And and at that time, I would have felt, oh, yes, uh, training with the, the the half crimp grip on like a 45 board or the canvas board or fingerboard, where it, it feels quite natural, especially if you're on one hand, to have a half crimp grip with the thumb off. And that, that feels quite good, that that had great utility in, in training. Um, but what really got me started using the three finger drag a lot more often was just having pulley injuries. Mm. So while I was recovering from those, I used three finger drag a lot. And I found that after a few months, I started to favor it more and more. And it just, ever since it, I, I, I've liked it more and more and felt that it's a really good grip. It has a couple of other advantages, especially that it gives you a little bit more reach. Huh, right. <laughs> you know? Sure. So, as you as you catch a hold at, at the limit of your stretch, if you catch it three finger drag, then you just have that little bit more reach, which does make a difference. And often you don't need to adjust; you can just catch the hold and 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 pull on it. Hmm. Um, I just find that it feels quite relaxing. I also just find that if I do training on the fingerboard with all three grip types, I find that my three finger drag tends to just respond more. Interesting. I just seem to get better gains on it. Well, that's, um, that's part of why I'm curious, because I can relate to that. I've had way mm-hmm. better success. I've actually, at this point, probably spent the bulk of my time fingerboarding, tr- focusing on the half crimp, and it's still very, mm-hmm. very weak. And I feel like mm-hmm. the the more limited time I've spent on pockets or open hand holds, that's just, I've gotten a lot more return on that investment. So I don't know if mm. if there's like, uh, yeah, I don't I don't really know how to think about that or how to move forward with that. No, I must say that I, I, I kind of, I, I do think about this question a lot myself and I don't really have a solid answer. I, I, yeah. I wish I did. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's like, go back to well, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you deal with that problem? Because on one hand, you would think, well, you, you've got this this obvious weakness of your, your half crimp grip. So, you know, at a basic level, you think, well, that's an obvious thing to focus on and try and fill in that weakness. And and get your grip strength to be broadly the same across all grip types, that would make sense. However, if there's something that is meaning that you're really not responding hardly at all, then it becomes a difficult argument to say to spend a lot of time working on it. It could be that that some of the differences between people 
are explained by the architecture of the forearm and especially the fingers, the, especially the finger lengths. There, there are certainly clearly some people that their finger strength can be at least partially attributed to having an ideal balance of finger length. Hmm. So for instance, if you, if you crimp and your little finger is, is open hand, I think that's quite a strong position. I mean, certainly I feel really weak with my thumb over, but I know plenty of other climbers that they shake a little bit and then as soon as the thumb goes over and they have a full crimp, they look much more relaxed and happy. I'm the exact opposite of that. Hmm. If you if you notice, uh, if you ever watch Chris Sharma climbing, um, he has a very distinctive style with a little finger always open, even enduring a full crimp. Uh-huh. That always struck me as, as kind of interesting. <laughs> and uh, like wa watching him climb and comparing uh, his grip to other climbers, it always made me think of that issue of finger length and how it plays into, you know, what grip feels comfortable at baseline. But I also wonder if there's some aspect of like, maybe some people will respond slightly better to training one grip type or another. So I don't know. It's like, for you, would it be better to to really focus in on that that half crimp and try and train it. I think that would be my first go-to option and really okay. try and see if you can move it. Because what was clear to me is like, when I was younger, I just thought, oh no, three finger drag. Like, I don't understand how people can use that. <laughs> and then once I'd gone through the hell of six months of being totally weak <laughs> on it, then I was like, oh, actually now it's a kind of favored grip and it has been ever since. Hmm. So I'm slightly wary of feeling like you don't get on well with that grip. It might just be lack of lack of exposure to it. And you've got a bit of a hard road to go to get up to a level where you start to use it more. And then once you use it more, then you feel good on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that would be my first option. But I certainly wouldn't exclude the possibility that you just might not be able to respond very well on that grip and that you might always get more mileage response to training out of the other grips hmm. yeah but broadly i still think the first option is to tr at least try to have a fairly even strength between the, the different grip types okay um, but i I'm, I'm not afraid of of either using or training that three finger drag i like it <laughs> okay um this is my final question about fingerboard mm -hmm. you mentioned that during that six months or, or rather 18 months you just had a single campus rung, like a 20 mil edge that you were doing all your training yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. And I know right. that uh, that you put out your own fingerboard and it's it's really nice mm -hmm. and it's really simple. It's basically just, it's almost like three different size of campus rungs stacked on each other. Yeah. Um, I guess I have two questions in one. What are your thoughts on training different sizes versus just sticking to something basic like a 20 mil edge? And then mm -hmm. this is actually a listener question. Uh, Cherise was wondering why your board feature, features a 15 mil and a 21 mil instead of the more common like 10 and 20 mil edges that we see out there. Yeah, yeah. So well, tackling the last question first, um, I mean, I've, I've hung off a lot of fingerboards <laughs> and tried a lot of different ones. And um, I always found that that edge that I, that I used, that campus rung that I used, which you can't buy anymore, when I started fingerboarding, I really liked that size. It just felt really comfortable to hold. And so we just modeled the middle rung of that. And it just so happened that it ended up being 21 mil. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I don't think there's nothing special about either 20 mil or 21 mil. <laughs> you know, why would there be? It just it just feels like a nice size. Uh-huh. Certainly for my for my hands, I guess obviously people with different size hands, you know, maybe they would if someone had a slightly smaller hand then maybe 20 mil would feel feel nice, but it was about feel. I, I just think that that's that's an important aspect is it it should be it should be comfortable and not nasty to hold if possible. Mm. So that's that's where the sizing came. It was just like trying different prototypes and going, oh yeah, that that feels better, that feels better, or that's the nicest size, we'll stick with that. So there wasn't any kind of like, we want it to be 21 mil for any particular reason, other mm. than just it feels nice. And then the different sizes, how, you know, I guess I think your first question was about like what's the, the rationale for using those different sizes of rungs I mean I think that sort of roughly either side of 20 mil middle rung is a great size because it's big enough that it doesn't hurt your skin um, but it's small enough that it's still fingery so for no other reason than for that that tends to be why I use it but any fingerboard is going to be used by people who are at vastly different levels of strength and one of the biggest challenges is matching the difficulty of the hang to your ability. And, you know, obviously we all do different tweaks of like hanging weight from us, taking weight off, using two hands, using one arm. And having different options for size is just about having convenient options to find that right nice level. And there probably is something to being used to hanging on a small edge as well that that probably is that there probably is something to that like in a neuromuscular sense just being used to the uh, the feeling of a very small edge i mean there's slight differences in in how the the rest of the muscles of the forearm are going to be activated depending on the angle of your wrist you know if you're holding a, a holder different size so it mm-hmm. probably does make sense to have a bit of variety there Okay. I was going to ask that. Do you ever do any hanging on very small holds, like 10 mil or below? Do you find those, do you find that helpful at all in specific context? Um, I actually don't. Um, maybe that would be, that would be beneficial. I don't know. Maybe that's some, a future experiment I could, I could try, but okay. I, I, I don't so far, but a lot of the bouldering I do is on very crimpy, terrain like just the rock types that we tend to have in here in scotland they tend to lend themselves where i do pull on a lot of those holds but they're all in boulder problems mm-hmm. <laughs> so my approach has generally been like well yeah i do i sort of do do that anyway but just in in my real climbing mm-hmm. yeah okay so perhaps perhaps that's that's good uh perhaps not. i mean in the ideal sense uh you know world i would um run a study and find out (laughs) (laughs) hard to do (laughs) yeah (laughs) um dave i want to check in with you off the record we've been going for Mm -hmm. a while now and i have plenty more that we could talk about how are you feeling and and um yeah how are you feeling about time oh just fine yeah um maybe what i'll do then we could could keep going absolutely i'm perfectly happy to keep going Hey friends, I want to add one thing about part one before you go. 
I wish I had asked Dave what his progression on that 21 millimeter rung looked like during those 18 months when he made the jump from 13D to 14D, as well as where his finger strength is at nowadays for a reference. I was curious how much progress he made during that time on the board itself. So I emailed him about it, and the results were really interesting. One thing I've definitely struggled with in the past is unrealistic expectations on the hangboard, and I suspect many of you can relate to that. And it was really interesting to read that Dave's finger strength really hasn't come up all that much. It's really just a handful of kilos over all these years. But the result in his climbing performance from that small strength increase has been incredible. Anyway, reading his email definitely got me motivated to keep at it, eking out those small improvements. And I wanted to share that with all of you as well. So I decided to publish that email exchange and you can find a downloadable PDF in the show notes and a downloadable PNG that might look better on your phone. You can find those in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to come back for part two. We'll see you next time. Stop when the clock is 13 You've been working but you're flirting With the weekend you can freak out One in a million You're a gem shine when the light grows dim See one, one, two, two, three, four Cause, cause, cause No one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Like we do it, like we do it